Singularity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, my guest on the show will be Jamei Cashio. Jamei um, has been selected by Foreign Policy Magazine as one of their top 100 global thinkers. He writes about the intersection of emerging technologies, environmental dilemmas, and plausible scenarios of the future. He is also a senior fellow of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and is therefore perhaps the fourth or the fifth person from that uh, institute that I'm bringing on the show. So without further ado, hi, Jamey, and uh, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Uh, Jamey, it's, uh, you're such a diverse thinker, um, as, as you often say in, in some of your previous interviews, you're, a, uh, you're not an expert in anything. You're a total generalist. An easily distracted generalist, yes. Easily distracted generalist. Excellent, yes. So uh, coming from another easily distracted generalist here on this end, let's see how we can do a, a focused and, and interesting, entertaining, informative interview. And uh, perhaps I should start asking you with, how did you get to be an easily distracted generalist? interested in issues such as technology, ethics, politics, and so on? Um, that's, an, that's a, a good question. I would suspect that some of it comes, comes from having um, intellectually generous parents who allowed me to just follow my interests wherever they led. Uh, and part of it came from being, you know, from being a geek, uh, not really dating or anything in high school, and so having the, tr the traditional lack of social life, meaning uh, a great deal of interest in Dungeons and Dragons and the other kinds of um, geeky adventure fare that, that you would have in the, God, the 1980s is when it would be. Um, and that sort of set me on my path. I actually started my university work at uh, University of California at Santa Cruz, um, I started that as an astrophysics major and quick t shifted over to become an anthropology major in the first year because there were a lot more women in the anthropology classes <laughs> than in the astrophysics classes. You know, I was, I was 18 years old. There are priorities here. So you had um, to catch up on the dating scene. Exactly. High school, exactly. Yes. And then um, I added a second major of, of history uh, because it turns out that I was pretty good at it and Ended up doing a, over the course of five years at, at UC Santa Cruz, did a, a two majors, uh, with uh, one being anthropology with a focus on physical evolution, human evolution, and the other being uh, history with a focus on modern history and revolutionary movements. Mm -hmm. So from there went, went, of course, to graduate school in political science, because why not go for a third social science? Um, and there I studied international politics. And uh, so this is interesting. In this was the early 1990s, and I wanted to do a dissertation. I did my master's degree, completed coursework, did my all the tests and everything. Wanted to get to my dissertation, and what I wanted to write about was the impact of emerging technologies on international power. Okay, now this is a seemingly common sense idea. In fact, you'll probably find it as a standard essay topic in advanced uh, undergraduate poli sci courses these days. At that time, early 90s, I could not get a dissertation committee. I could not find enough professors who were interested in that subject to sit as a committee for me. And they wanted me to do things like write about the global textile trade regime. Now, this was at UC Berkeley. You know, so actually uh, one, of the, one of the top ten political science departments at the time. And so I wrestled with things and pulled out my, what was left of my hair uh, for, for about a year and decided to actually walk away. So I do not have my PhD, even though I have done everything leading up to writing a dissertation. And so I went to work in the computer field. And, um, after a few years of just doing a lot of tech stuff, I ended up working, getting a job as the tech guy at Global Business Network, which in the, in the mid nineties was a, um, one of the first scenario planning consulting groups founded by Stuart, uh, Stuart Brand, who was one of the original editors of, um, 
um, Whole Earth Review and uh, Whole Earth Guides. He was uh, also um, Peter Schwartz, who wrote Art of the Long View, uh, Napier Collins, Jay Ogilvie, Lawrence Wilkinson. So a group of really smart guys uh, got together, <clears throat> got together and decided to start a company entirely predicated on the concept of helping organizations think about the future. They, excuse me, they brought me in as their tech guy and they very quickly realized that I had other skills such as the ability to write. And so they started bringing me out on the, on their jobs as their in-house consultant on technology futures. And that went for a few years. And then I had uh, one of their, <clears throat> one of their colleagues, one of their friends was a, a television producer who was working on a science fiction show and was sort of running some ideas that he was having past those of us at GBN. And he really liked what I came up with and said, Hey, why don't you move down to Hollywood? I'll give you a job working as a tech consultant on our new t- science fiction TV show. I'll even guarantee you a script. So if you want to see if you want to be a Hollywood writer. Okay. Wow. I never had a Hollywood dream, but you don't turn down an offer like that. <laughs> um, which means, of course, as soon as the, as soon as we uh, moved down, my wife and I moved down to uh, Hollywood, the show was killed. You know, canceled before it even aired. And then I spent the next couple of years bouncing around helping out writers and doing tech advising on different science fiction shows. And the weird, the weird, um, experience of being in Hollywood, a very quintessential Hollywood experience of working on a bunch of stuff, getting a lot of work. Nothing I worked on ever actually made it to air. And so it was a surreal phenomenon of being really creative, putting a lot of energy and thought into thinking about what's to come. And nothing that I worked on ever actually had an audience. And I didn't like that. So I ended up going back and doing consulting work. And um, in 2001, the comp- consulting company I worked for uh, went bankrupt. And that was the last time I worked full-time in an office. And so I've been doing um, freelance stuff, uh, game design, and um, writing and giving public talks. Uh, these days, I do most of my work as a... Um, as a full-time or <clears throat> a half-time consultant for the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, which is a 40-odd-year-old uh, non-profit uh, foresight company, foresight organization, spin-off from RAND originally, mm-hmm. uh, now specializes in, I mean, the 10-year forecast program there. And I'm they, they selected me as one of their distinguished fellows. So I'm a senior fellow for IEET and a distinguished fellow for IFTF. And so just, um, you can refer to me as fellow at any time and I'll answer that. (laughs) Okay, dear fellow, I have to say that at least in one sense I was more successful than you and that's in pulling (laughs) out my hair. Uh, Yes. Perhaps because of our common experience in academia, I myself um, had a joint specialist in political science uh, and philosophy and a minor in economics as an undergrad. And then I did a master's in international relations. Uh, my thesis one, uh, my thesis was called, uh, Hacking Destiny, Critical Security at the Intersection of Machine and Human Intelligence. Nice. And I went into a ton of trouble with that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, the major criticism was that I didn't address the literature from the 70s and early 80s sufficiently enough. Interestingly, yes. that was the literature my professors was more, more fami- most familiar with because that's when they graduated pretty much. Right. Um, anyway, so <laughs> I decided after that enough of academia, and I started yeah. this blog. <laughs> so um, if you studied international relations, did you read any of Ken Walt's uh, Theory of International Politics, Man, the State, and War? Yeah, I think he was one of the realists, right? Yeah, neo-realist. He was actually my, my, he was my main mentor at UC yeah. Berkeley. So I worked most closely with Ken. He was of the all, all the faculty members. He was the one person who actually thought there was value in my dissertation idea. So, you know, that's big very up interesting. For also coming from a new realist too. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Wow. Okay. So enough about uh, about history and politics. <laughs> okay. No, but that's actually very relevant, I think. And the reason for that is this: because, and perhaps I should bring that point here right now. Your criticism. Um, often towards the singularity community is that um, we don't bring enough humanity. That is to say, we don't bring enough politics and enough ethics when we're talking about issues of technology. And many of the people... Yeah. Yes, many of the people who are the creators are software engineers and engineers, and they, they do not consider generally issues of ethics and politics. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, 
And it's, it, it is definitely ethics and politics, but even beyond that, just the understanding of how people, how society responds to things. There's a, an unfortunate assumption that um, humans behave as rational actors, you know, not, ju- not just in the economic sense, but as the you know, easily slotted into your algorithms sense. And people don't act like that. And it's, it's unfortunate when I see people who are otherwise brilliant. And a lot of the folks that I've, that I've dealt with and I've spoken with in the singularity community are just completely flat out brilliant. Mm-hmm. And yet don't have a strong grasp of, of people. And so we end up with these kinds of, of just so stories about the singularity that, um, fall apart. As soon as you start as soon as you start thinking about how would regular people, how would political leaders, how would business people, how would they actually respond to the to the arc of this story? A lot of the the narrative around uh, human reactions to the singularity really focus on what happens afterwards, and very often that's just well, the machines are, have taken over and things are, the human era is over, mm-hmm. and it's. It, in, I don't know, intentionally or otherwise ignores the the ramp-up phase. What happens as these systems are getting more and more sophisticated? What happens as the technology is getting better and better and people are using it in different ways and there's a, comp- there's a sense of competition um, among the different people who are developing the technology, the different political, you know, political groups? And that, that point in time, that point in the arc of a, of a singularity is in many ways the critical the critical point because that's when even if you have the technology the arc of the technology leads us in one direction that's when the world can push us off in a different direction mm-hmm. you know there's there's a kind of of an, of godlike agency given that's assigned to the to the technology and an utter lack of agency that's assigned to society in a lot of these stories i mean kurzweil in particular um Ben Gorsel, not, not so much, but, uh, but the primary narratives around the singularity are this humans, one, our only job is to build the machines and then go away. Well, I, I, I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if actually Kurzweil would, would entirely agree with that, but let me, let me just backtrack just a little bit here and, and say, um, Let's start putting a little bit more meat here in our conversation by laying out your views about the Singularity community in general and Singularity University in particular. So you can elaborate even more on what you just said. Right. Um, The Singularity community in general, actually, of the vast majority of the people that I've interacted with, I adore. I really like the people that I've, I, Ben Gertzel's a great guy, really smart. I've had a, a, a number of good conversations with him. Werner Vinge is just a, a hoot. He's really, really clever. And I, I've greatly enjoyed the time I've had to, talking with him. Um, I've never met Kirkswell. So we sort of set, sort of set that one aside, but by and large, the singularity community are people who are really thoughtful and for the most part, really concerned about the impacts of of technologies, of uh, transformative technologies. Uh-huh. Um, there are too few people in the singularity community who come from a non-engineering background. Um, and I, engineering here in kind of a broad sense, and they, they don't necessarily all have degrees, you know, masters of science in mechanical engineering or computer engineering or something like that, but they all come from that mindset. So, I, for example, Michael Anisimov, I don't know what his educational background is, but he, but a lot of the work that he that he produces, a lot of the writing and the conver- that he's done, the conversations that we've had, seem to come from that perspective of a of an engineer. Um, and there are too few people who really understand uh, human societies, and so what we end up with is a, because they're talking about just like you you mentioned your professors who wanted to focus who wanted to know what you thought of the, the 1970s literature because that's what they were familiar with. You have a lot of folks in the singularity community who want to talk about the engineering and technology sides of things because that's what they're familiar with. You, you start to throw out uh, human issues, you know, legal issues, liability issues around um, political reactions and irrational reactions and competition. And 
this is stuff that's squishy and hard to quantify and is not stuff that they're, that they've spent a lot of time studying. And so they tend not to want to focus in that way. And it's completely understandable. Um, and so you have this, the body of this, um, the body, of, not just of this community, but of this, of this movement really having a strongly, um, you know, technophiliac bias. Um, and I don't mean bias in a bad way, but bias in a, this is where the, pers- the most of their perspectives are coming from. And there are other things that, that are largely being ignored. So what was particularly interesting about Singularity University is how that manifest. Because if you look at the, especially the original curriculum for, for Singularity University, you had what, nine or 10 different, uh, themes, uh, different, different, um, Class, uh, course, you know, course, uh, I think seven or eight. Seven or eight. Well, actually, originally, I think it was like nine or ten, because I remember doing a, a, trying to, uh, develop a, a, an alternative, and it was, ten was a nice even number. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is that there were these nine, ten, seven, eight, whatever di- different themes that yeah. the vast majority were, um, essentially, here's this really cool new technology that is going to change everything. And then you had one that was, um, policy and law and ethics. Um, yeah. Uh, ethics. And so it's like, okay, let's, we have these you know, eight different fields and then we're going to talk about one, you know, everything else that, that has consumed humanity for the last 10,000 years. We're just going to give you just one. <laughs> um, and to the extent that they talked about economics, it was all about investment opportunities. And as I, you know, look more and more into what was being done originally at Singularity University, it felt very strongly like, um, we're going to talk to business leaders to, t- to tell them how to invest and give them again, yeah, let them be really, be really smart, smart at dinner parties to talk about great new technologies and to know where to invest. Or to and entrepreneurs was, who want to create startups. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, Singularity University has a, a slogan of being, you know, preparing humanity for the coming technological era or something along those lines, but it's preparing humanity. And this is not about preparing humanity. This is about, you know, lining your investment portfolio. And so you probably read the piece that I, that I wrote uh, a few years ago, sort of setting up an alternative cur- curriculum that was really about what are the issues that emerge when, when you talk about these kinds of technologies? What are the, what have we seen in the past? What can we, what can we imagine going forward with this, these arenas of technology? And really, what are the issues of liability? How do people respond to these kinds of developments? How have they responded in the past? What can we learn from those past, you know, past examples? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's, that's one way to, to clarify. There wasn't much of a sense of learning from the past in the Singularity University curriculum as it was originally proposed. And I know that it's evolved over time, so I don't want this to sound like I'm... It's interesting, though, because you raising some of the points that I raised as my own personal criticism when I was there, part of GSP 11, uh, as a philosopher, I I consider myself to be sort of a philosopher in a way. I mean, my my writing name is Socrates, right? So, So those are some of the same criticisms that I had while I was there. But on the other hand, I can see why they could have done that, and that's precisely because it's very engineering, but I would also say very business entrepreneurship-oriented community. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it serves like an incubator because the underpinning underlying idea or assumption uh, is that, you know, if you have incredible startup companies like Google, you can change the world for the better. Sure. And, of course, that assumption is worth dissecting and exploring and, and making more explicit, perhaps, because many of the people who attended the, the place, actually at, at least at GSP 11, many of my classmates were not aware of that uh, on the outset. And what's actually one particular thing that I would like to push on this on this very point is that people, especially in the engineer with an engineering mindset, an engineering background, don't recognize that they have 
um, political that they embed political and social biases into the yeah. seemingly objective engineering work they do. The choices about interfaces, choices about language that gets used, these are all political and social choices that if they don't recognize them, have no way of actually breaking them down and saying, is this the right possible choice? Um, and so when you say, yes, Google has, you know, Google can change the world. Well, yes, it can. But the, the mindset underlying the, the Google approach around wanting to, to categorize and collect everything has historically run headlong into mindsets from other kinds of, and political perspectives from other kinds of industries, other kinds of, of societies. And so you end up with, you know, so cases where um, Google can't do its street view because of, ver of very different views on privacy, or Google can't, or the whole issue around can it actually scan all of these books? You know, because yeah. one perspective says, well, information should be free, or at the very least, should be cataloged. Another perspective is saying, well, no, 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 these, you don't own these things. You can't do that without, at least without asking. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, I think you're absolutely right that there is this, there is, there is a feeling of, um, of almost heroism. And the folks who, who are engaging these kind, this kind of research see themselves as heroes, see themselves as changing the world for the better, but often don't quite get that not everybody sees what agrees with their view of what a better world looks like. Mm -hmm. So, so let me ask you this then. Is that why in one of your previous interviews that I saw, you said, if I can't dance, I don't want to be a part of the singularity? Yes. Well, it's, it's a famous Emma Goldman line about the, the um, Russian Revolution, 1917. Um, yeah. you know, and she, was, she was an ardent uh, communist. And was really disappointed with the the way the Russian Revolution uh, turned, out. turned out, and you know, her line, which may or may not have re actually happened, is kind of apocryphal at this point, um, was in response to the the crackdown on on celebration, crackdown on um, frivolous behaviors. And if I if I can't dance, I don't want any part of your revolution. Well, and that's why I I thought that was a really apropos line, a really apropos concept to apply to this. Um, Future revolution. You think you see the singularity in this kind of revolutionary, especially in the classic uh, Marxian, all that is solid melts into air, you know, revolution of transformation. Revolution equals transformation. Um, if I can't dance, if I can't be a human, if I can't be a person and an individual and a, if I can't express myself in non-rational ways, I don't want to be part of this. <laughs> And the thing is, I'm not alone in that. I suspect, I, I strongly suspect that the vast majority of people in the world would, if, if told they could have, they could have everything, but they, but they would no longer be human. They would no longer be people would reject it out of hand. And so I'm not a technophobe. I am by no means a technophobe. I am by no means you know, a Luddite or anything like that. I'm, I fully embrace the augmented future. Mm. But it's it's an, it's augmentation, not replacement. Mm -hmm. So, so you think there is actually value in non-rational uh, oh, expressions of humanity and, and yes. communication? Oh, um, art, love. I mean, it, the things that we see as defining ourselves as human. These are things that are by and large non-rational. So. We think, oh, well, humans, we're, you know, we have hands, we make tools. Well, beavers make tools. You know, birds make tools. Chimps and monkeys make tools. Making tools is not uniquely human. Um, the artistic expression of emotion is one thing that does seem to be uniquely human. And. But we're you know, also the only species that is rational, so could you know, make at least a correlation? How do you know, how do you know that? Well, I guess <laughs> that's a great question, but we're the only ones who can do advanced calculus and send stuff to Mars, for example. Is, well, yes, this is true. Yeah, I, I wouldn't count a, a, a meteor strike knocking a, a bit of rock from Earth to Mars with some biology on accounting, but okay. Um, you're right. We, these, the artistic expressions are not the only things that make us human, but we can't discount them. And I find all too often that folks who are engaged in this kind of, who in this, the singularity discourse are eager to discount the, the 
the the non-rational eager to discount the eager to discount the meat as it were mm-hmm. um you know they want to they can't they can't wait to be uploaded well i don't want to be uploaded <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> I, I i'm very I, i'm i'd be very happy to have some really fancy replacements for my for my arthritic knees and for my non-perfect ears and eyes but you know by and large i want to remain me so there is benefit to biology there is benefit to biology it's not the only beneficial thing out there it's not the it is not the <clears throat> it is not perfection but it is something that that i do think and this is obviously we're veering off into personal philosophy here um it is something that has over the past well certainly the, the past you know 200,000 years since homo sapiens uh, or if you want to go back the past however many you know two and a half billion three billion years of dna based life it's you know proven pretty hardy it's proven pretty adaptable but and it's very limited in personal instantiations right so this instantiation that i'm discussing this topic with right now is likely to last only another 50 years at best or 60 maybe or so let's say 70 even if it's like really amazing pro- provided our current level of technology and how long will the computer that you're using last <laughs> my last desktop lasted about five years and two months uh, okay. i just replaced it i know that's a tricky question because i shared with you in the beginning that i just replaced my desktop but and that's the, kind of improving isn't it no actually it's not i think the the replacement cycles are even faster shorter in a way um you know, people replacing their mobile phones, people replacing, you know, their tablets or iPads, whatever. The point, the point being that we have this, because of a, of a history of lived experience, we know that the meat is fragile. We know that bodies die. And we, we have this weird, well, schizophrenia about, about our technology in that we, it's disposable in many ways i mean yeah this you know, i'm done with this computer i'll toss it into the trash or toss it into electronics recycling to try to you know dig out their little bits of gold and platinum um <clears throat> or with this sense of well the things we make are permanent the things we make are forever and it's i have more trust in the meat that i live in being around in 50 years than in any of the hardware that I'm um that I interact with on a daily basis being around in 50 years. So would you then at least consider enhancing or improving the meat that you have? Oh hell yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Um I do it already in a very primitive um external way, you know, glasses and hearing aids and and the like. I would You know, I mentioned I wasn't joking about having arthritic knees. I would love to get bionic knees. I would love to get, you know, replacements or at least um bio replacement eyes that work perfectly or ear I would love never to have it ringing in my ears tinnitus again. Just get those get those suckers replaced. Get them augmented. Yes, go for it. I'm I would love that. But there's a point and i don't and this is actually becomes an interesting philosophical point of where does the where does the person end as you replace more and more pieces of you and there probably ends up being you know very close related to have you replaced your brain yet but um yeah i i w- i'm very happy to be augmented enhanced and extended like i said just not replaced but doesn't that mean that you're sort of fetishizing the the biology that that meat that's inside of this this box here like how is that different than than fetishizing the computer yes um <clears throat> in some, no no i'm trying to think of what's the, the best way to articulate this <clears throat> because at a super superficial level you're correct yeah i'm ascribing to the biology a um a particular kind of value a special value um but in that i have about six and a half billion fellow travelers 
Um, that is, I have, I have a lot of other people on this planet who have, who ascribe the same kind of thing. So it's a, yes, it's a fetish, but it's a really damn common fetish. Um, <laughs> but that's no excuse for it. I mean, if you go to, to in the time of the Inquisition, when people were being burned in the stake, uh, you know, you could probably take a poll and, and someone would say, yeah, look, uh, you know, 80% or 75% of people support others being burnt on the stake. But that doesn't justify it. That doesn't make it worthwhile. That doesn't excuse not, it ethically. Not from a 21st century perspective, it doesn't. See, sure. There's a kind of, um, you're, you're trying to ascribe a modern, you know, trying to use a modern perspective on a pre-modern phenomenon. Um, it's entirely possible, and I, I do not dispute in any way that 100, 200 years from now, you'll have people looking back, or whatever we think, whatever things think of themselves as people, um, looking back and saying, I can't believe, can you believe that people actually fetishized, you know, the meat brain and all of its <laughs> failings and its aneurysms and, you know, it, and I'm sorry, it's just completely ridiculous. Um, and it is, but I'm, I've never claimed not to be ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I almost damaged mine this summer. I was uh, rushing out the door, going out for a bike ride, having my bike on my shoulder, and I slipped on the top stair because the floor was just being mopped, and I fell down the stairs, and I hit my head brilliantly every stair going down the way. Oh, ow, ow. Right? And, and I blacked out in the end. I passed out. The only thing that actually saved me was that I had a helmet on. Yes, but, but but so I, I ended up with a pretty serious concussion and was out of commission for a few weeks and had about probably six weeks before the headaches stopped and all that. But that's just one example of how really fragile this is. And yet, and yet, uh, you are seemingly okay now. <laughs> um, bio- biology has our human biology has evolved over the course of the you know, three and a half billion years, whatever it is of, of DNA life, biology has evolved to be remarkably resilient, to basically be able to repair itself in ways that we have no clue how to do with our hard technologies. Mm-hmm. I mean, take your, take your computer and drop it down that same set of stairs and, and tell me that in six months it's going to be just fine, just on, just lying there on its own. Yeah, but look at it. The, the same argument has been given in the early 1900s about cars and horses, right? Horses have been around for thousands of years. Look at them. They don't break up like the early cars did. They were faster than them. Mm-hmm. They were easier to maintain. Everybody could have a barn and just stick the horse there. And, you know, <laughs> you don't have to go to the fueling station, really. You just leave it on the lawn and them. it takes care of itself, you know? So, so I mean, that argument seems to me not very convincing, is it? Well, if you rep- there, you're talking about replacing a- an external tool. You're replacing so the horse is no, an external tool. No, we replace the whole biological organism by a tool. But from a pers- from a human perspective, you're talking about it, it's a tool. It's an implement a a mechanism of implementation. You're trying to implement a particular function. In the case of the horse and the car, it's transportation. The brain and is not a tool in a way? A, well, you know, it's really hard to, to <laughs> see it as a tool because you have to ask then who, it, then who or where is the tool user? Yeah. So are you saying it's a tool that uses itself? Then you're really begging the question of what a tool is to begin with. Um, to the degree that I think that most of us would accept that our personalities and our identities reside in our brains, it's not, we can't simply talk about it as a, being a tool in that, in that simplistic implementation sense. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I'm not so quick to replace it. Like, you know, I said I'd be willing to replace my eyes. Now, the, uh, in this sense, I'm willing to say, okay, yeah, the eye is a tool. Um, in a really broad, hand-wavy way. The eye is a tool. The ears are tools. The knees are tools. Um, but the brain, because that is the seat of identity. So is that is, the point where you dig in your heels? I'm willing to upgrade every other part except for my brain. At this point, at, well, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm really careful. I'd be really careful about upgrading because I don't want to have to deal with the 18-month upgrade cycle of my upgrades, replacing the eye, my eyes every 18 months because the new, the better versions have come out. Um, 
And so I'm actually much more fond of exocortical, you know, external technologies because you can upgrade them without surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, yeah, if I was going to dig in my heels anywhere, it would be the last stand would be about the brain. Now, if we're at a point where we can readily, safely, and reliably replace other other body parts, then there'd be an interesting conversation to be had, especially if there was a safe, reliable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, brain replacement. I don't even know if that's even the right way. Of, do you ever read um, Hans Moravec's Mind Children? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I did read it probably seven or eight or nine. Oh, no, ago. more than part that. Of my thesis. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah, preparation, um, yeah. Especially in terms in computer books. He actually had a really brilliant idea. He said, if you're going to do a brain replacement, the, you want to have, have a continuity of identity. And the way you would do that would actually be to um, essentially read read molecular levels of the brain layer by layer and build them up layer by layer in the machine. You build up the analog and software and have them connected such that the the identity, the person is conscious and keeps their identity across that entire transformation, you know, from like this, so that at the end point, you have these wires running from the computer into the skull <laughs> of an otherwise empty skull, and the person has retained their, their sense of self. Mm-hmm. Show me that working, and then we'll talk. <laughs> so the thing is, here, here's the problem. I we have the our converse, our conversation at this point has been a comparison of the real world attributes of our biologies and the fantasy attributes of future technologies. We have no way to replace the brain anytime soon. We have no way to re, we have no way to replace my knees in the way that we're talking about anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best we can do is like some titanium implants that frankly have to be replaced on a regular basis. Yeah, um, fair enough. Okay, so when we we need to ground our conversation in reality, and unfortunately the reality of these technologies, as they stand today and in, and in the um, agreeably foreseeable future, so let's say the next 5, 10 years, because I think we can probably have an agreement on where things go in that short time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, that's nowhere near as reliable as and resilient and self-healing as biology is. Mm-hmm. And so we can we can return to this conversation in n decades when the kind when these kinds of reliable, resilient, self-healing um, human-made technologies become available. But until then, it's a it's an unfair fight. Because we know we know all of the the lived problems of biology, we don't know any of the lived problems of these replacement technologies. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So I guess uh, I will be the first one in line, say a decade from now, to interview you on the topic of that day's knee replacement technologies. And I, I'd be more than happy once I got got out of my surgery to talk to you about it. <laughs> Excellent. So in the meantime, let me ask you then. What, is that the most upsetting, and if not, what is the most upsetting thing about the singularity today that you come across usually, that you think, think is something that must be addressed? Well, I think that the most upsetting aspect is um, the assumed lack of agency. Okay, so uh, you, you have a political science background. You know what I mean by agency here. But for the people who, who aren't really familiar with that term, it's basically the, uh, the internal capacity to act. You know, and have your actions affect outcomes. Um, we ha- there is an assumption in, in much of the singularity literature that stuff happens to us and we accept it or we don't, and it doesn't matter whether we accept it or we don't because it's going to happen. Um, and so there, and therefore you end up getting these really silly stories about people um, just embracing everything that that's new because it look it's new and perfect and wonderful. Um, and I'm thinking here about the. The, the science fiction narrative aspect of uh, the age of spiritual machines, um, Kurt Weill's 1999 book, because mm-hmm. um, that's where it really hit home for me that, wow, these, this guy has never met another human being in his life. <laughs> um, and so there's this, there's, actually, let me, let me clarify, it's not, it's not simply the, the lack of assumed agency on the part of, of humans, it's the Assumption of perfection on the part of machines. So, um, 
the standard narrative about the the computer waking up you know, AI singularity, because if you remember, Vinji actually had four different models of a singularity, and only two of them involved machine uh, computers. Yeah. Um, the the standard narrative essentially has once the computer wakes up, it's able to take over. It self it self improves at a at a pace rapidly than, than anyone could ever imagine, and it takes over, and you know we're done. And there's a hell of a lot of hand waving involved there. Okay, how does it self-improve? You know, yes, it may have a better understanding of its inner workings than, than humans, but that's assuming that it actually has the, it's been given the, um, data background to be able to understand what's happening in itself. It, it may be able to, to alter the software, but it's not going to be able to alter the hardware without help. And what if somebody pulls the goddamn plug? You know, there's this, there is this almost charming assumption of, um, godlike power. Lowercase g, godlike power on the part of these, you know, suddenly sentient, suddenly self-aware machines that, that is contrasted against a bunch of bumbling humans who had no idea what they'd done and have no idea how to stop something as simple as a computer next, you know, going crazy, figuratively speaking. Um, do you know who Jaron Lanier is? Yeah, yeah. He, I have interviewed him on this show before. I've interviewed every single person you've, you've mentioned so far today. <laughs> uh, except your, your supervisor. Okay. Except uh, school. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you've, you've interviewed Hans Moravec? Uh, no, not him. But Werner Vinge, Ray Kurzweil, Michael Anisimov, um, who else yeah. did you mention? Any women? Um, I've interviewed uh, Dr. Linda McDonald Glenn, okay. Natasha Vitamore. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, that's actually just as a as a side note. One of the things that really is a constant constant point of sadness for me is just how um, white male biased the singularity community is. Yeah, my and, wife is merciless on my guest list on the show when it comes to women guests, and I am trying to keep her happy and good. interview as many women as possible. <laughs> you know, as a middle-aged white male, I, I say this with authority, that there are too many of us um, in, in this community. Point, anyway, um, oh, Jerry Lanier. So he had actually had a really amusing story of you know, 10, 15 years ago. Where he basically said, you know, the, the, any singularity is going to end with the, with a blue screen of death. Which, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, there are a lot of things to criticize about his stories, and I don't, I, I don't take um, everything that he says with complete seriousness. Um, but I think it was a that generally speaking is a really astute observation that you have these kinds of. These, these tech, the real world manifestations of the, of the things that we build, of the technologies that we build are imperfect. The real world manifestations of our digital systems are buggy. The real world manifestation of the hardware that we build fails. And this is not constant failure. It's not constant bugginess, but it's regular failure, regular bugginess. Um, I just had to send my regular, my main computer back to you know, back to the shop to have its hard drive replaced. You know, it was under warranty. Um, you know, it's a hard drive. They've been making hard, drive, hard drives for decades, and they still fail yeah. in really ridiculous ways. I mean, why? You know, I have to have four different backups of things just to make just to make sure that nothing that I, I really don't lose my data in case I have multiple failures. And we and we think these kinds of systems are going to take over the world. <laughs> I will in, I will not discount the scenario of um, the classic singularity AI scenario as being a possibility at some point, but it's going to require a paradigm shift in how we build our our computers. It will require a, an utter transformation of the way we make our tools, and that's the only thing that was what would allow something like you know a singularity of this model of this approach. Um, to happen. Now, sort of frank, take that. If we look at the, at Vinci's classic 
uh, formulation of the singularity. He had four of them. One was a, the network wakes up, which basically Google gets smart. All uh, those was pre-Google. And the network wakes up, individual computers wake up, um, human augment, you know, augmentation of human plus computer and um, biotech. And he was sort of like very vague on that last one. Um, biotech, nanotech, something like that, but basically an internal transformation. Those last two of augmentation of human intelligence and the, uh, the digital augmentation of human intelligence and the biological augmentation of human intelligence, those strike me as far more plausible pathways to a transformative scenario than the magical computer waking up. And it, it's sad to me that the singularity community has focused so on the former rather than the latter. Exactly. It's focused in such a laser-like way on the, uh, uh, the fetishization of the computer mm-hmm. rather than looking at the, the wider array of things that we have a better chance of, of implementing in the near term and are already having measurable impacts. I mean, you, we are already seeing phenomenon around uh, the use of um, pharmaceutical enhancement of, of minds that are really primitive because the drugs that we're using are really primitive. But we have a pathway of understanding where to go with that. And the more that we do research on the brain, and yes, that may help the development of brain-like computers down the road, but in the nearer term, it's going to help the development of augmentation, pharmaceutical and biological augmentation of that brain. Um, one thing I, me- I mentioned in the uh, If I Can't Dance, I Don't Be Part of Your Singularity talk that I gave in New York a few years ago that also doesn't get sufficient attention is the idea of collective intelligence. That, yes, you want to compare you know, the, the super smart how AI to any one human brain, and okay, yes. But we don't live in isolation. We have a, even in this really primitive, you know, where we have to use our mouths to speak to each other kind of way, we have the ability to share our thoughts and collectively, collectively think about the world. And that the, the collaboration that arises from diversity, and that's actually the really critical phenomenon here, because it, it wouldn't be replicated by just having, you know, a million versions of the same computer. It's a diversity of minds that arises from our individual histories, individual cultures, beliefs, ethics, politics, norms, all that damn non-rational stuff that actually give us a variety of perspectives that allow us to create something, to create ideas that are greater than something that any one of us could come up with individually. So, um, if you wanted to press me and say, do I think that a singularity in the very broad sense is, is going to happen? Yes. Almost certainly we'll have some kind of transformation around intelligence over the course of the next few decades that will utterly reshape how we live on this world. Do I think it'll be because we have super smart Mac, MacBook Airs? No. It's not, you know, uh, artificially intelligent iPads or window, you know, Windows 14. Um, yeah, you anticipated the- my, my, my question here, which was to say that you're definitely a singularity critic, but I was going to say it doesn't sound to me like you're a complete singularity skeptic, though. No, I'm, I'm a critic of the way that uh, I'm a critic of the singularity um, movement. That's probably a better way, a better way of putting it. I, I think that this is a really important topic. That in fact there are developments along the lines of uh, augmentation and. and AI and all of these different, you know, different phenomena that will have transformative effects will be radical changes to our economies, radical changes to how we, how we do our politics, how we, how we manage our environmentally broken world. And very, very little of the conversation that actually takes place among the singular people who refer to themselves as singularitarians, um, really focuses on that. It's, it's all about either, um, just so stories about how the machines wake up or about how the machines are going to kill us all. We need to figure out how to make them nice or the machines are going to give us a, a, um, it'll be machines of loving grace and they watch over us and make sure everything's okay for an, forever and ever. Amen. Um, these are, you know, the, the analogy that gets thrown around too much, but is still apropos is the rapture. This notion that it's going to be heaven or hell because these, these vastly powerful beings from beyond, that in this case we happen to make ourselves, will take us away. 
will, and there's that, I used the line from Marx before, that all that a solid melts into air. This is the very real thrust of the conversation that happens so often when I talk with, with people who are really deeply embedded in the singularity of movement, is this is this sense of, it's all going to change. Um, we don't need to worry about the environment because after the singularity, the machines will take care of everything. Um, we don't have to worry about inequality. We don't have to worry about um, starvation. We don't have to worry about sort of go down the list of things that are real world here and now problems. We don't have to worry about any of that because once, you know, come the singularity, all of that will be fixed or none of that will matter because we'll all be living you know, uploaded in digital worlds. Jamey, I was actually planning to cover most of those topics today, such as war, climate change, politics, uh, inequality, and so on, because I know you have written and you have a lot to say about all of them. But unfortunately, for one of those hu human, also human, um, deeply embedded flaws of, of my box, our deterioration kind of ended up being focused primarily on the singularity. And I will definitely use that as an excuse to ask you for a second interview a couple of months down the road, if possible. But uh, for uh, closing our interview today, I want to ask you the two usual questions which I always ask of my guests. And uh, the first one is, where can people go and find more about you and your work? Uh, that would be the best place to go would be my website, openthefuture.com, O-P-E-N-T-H-E-F-U-T-U-R-E.com. And there has links to uh, interviews and videos and irregular essays and um, bios and all, everything that you, everything jamais that you need to know, you can find there. Fantastic. Um, and then the last question is, if there's a single message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today, what would you like that to be? You matter. That your choices, that your decisions, that your thoughts actually make a difference. That we can't let ourselves be, be seduced or forced into thinking that nothing that we do matters. You know, the, the future doesn't happen to us. The future is the manifestation of the myriad choices that we make. The future is something that we create. Um, Bruce Sterling, who is a wonderful science fiction author. If you haven't interviewed him, you should. I haven't. I'm working. I'm trying to. I've been trying to for a while. Um, but he said something really astute. You know, I don't know if he remembers that he said this, but I love this. Is that The future is not a noun. It's a verb. You know, The future isn't a destination. It's a process. And so that's, uh, that's what I try to build into all the work that I do. And I think that's what I want. If, if anything, that's what I want people to take away from this. I think that's a fantastic point to stop our interview at. Um, Jamey, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you very much. Yeah.